and welcome to Resistance TV. Uh, tonight we're looking at how the UK government forcibly sent 150,000 kids abroad between 1920 and 1967 to what they described as Whiteton, Australia and Canada. Now, the former Labour Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, did make a formal apology, but only after the Australian government issued an apology first. In a breathtaking I think can only be described as a breathtaking understatement. Anyway, Gordon Brown said the programme was, in quotes, misguided. But it was considerably worse, in my opinion, than merely misguided. I mean, this was a deliberate and heartless assault against vulnerable working class kids. They were cut off from their families and some were even told that they were orphans, which was just a barefaced lie. Incredibly, no UK government officials were ever charged, let alone convicted, for what can only be described as a crime against humanity. So joining us this evening to discuss this despicable chapter in Britain's history is Mick Napier. Mick's perhaps best known as the founder of the fantastic Scottish Palestine Solidarity Campaign. But Mick, perhaps you could just start by saying, you know, why this is an issue about which you feel, feel particularly strongly. I mean, I think it's an issue that obviously all right minded people would feel strongly about. But I think you've got a particular interest, haven't you? So perhaps you could open up by just giving us a bit of background. Perhaps, Chris, I could explain why I've got three particular interests in this. Yeah, of course. Um, I've got a Canadian passport, by the way, and a couple of Canadian children. Um, and uh, you may have heard last year how the Canadian government admitted that the hundreds of bodies that were dug up from, uh, you know, Indian schools, from schools for First Nations, um, hundreds of bodies in mass graves and many schools dotted across Canada that the Canadian government this amounted to genocide, and they don't challenge that label. Um, it was a specific attempt to disappear the, the First Nations people um, by forcibly assimilating them into whiteness or Europeanness or something like that, uh, forbidden to speak their own languages and so on and so on. Um, I... I I'm also involved in the issue of Palestine and therefore study Israel fairly closely. And there's an anniversary coming up in quite a few days' time, actually, when an Israeli government minister, Hanegbi, I think it was 2016, actually, yeah, 2016 it was, um, announced on national TV what many, many people already knew, which couldn't be concealed any longer, that 5,000 uh, Yemeni Jewish kids who had been coerced or made or wanted to emigrate to Israel after 48 had been disappeared, had been snatched from maternity wards, had simply gone into hospital and never gone home. And those 5,000 children were adopted by European Jewish families to whiten them because that was seen to be a good investment in the, in the state of Israel. Oriental Jews and Balkan Jews as well that were seen as inferior um, and really a major problem for the for the state at that. Um, so that that was a huge scandal and nobody challenges that in Israel. It's it's, it's public domain. Yeah. But you know that, horrific though that is that the child the mothers were told their children were dead. The children were told their mothers didn't want them. Um, agony ensued, you know, multiplied by thousands. You imagine the horror of being told that your mother's dumped you because she just does, you know, uh, and you find out later that um, the case. So, 
that was a major, a huge, horrific story, but it pales into insignificance when you look at what happened in Britain. And you know, Israel was a settler colonial state with all the brutality and, and ethnic cleansing involved in that. But far too many people think that it's so unique, you know, it's the kind of double spawn and it's unique on the planet and so on. They don't see the commonalities between that state, anachronistic, it's still a colonial state, and the other white supremacist states, the other colonizing states based on white supremacy, like Britain, Canada, Australia, South Africa, and so on. And I think it's important to look at what's, what, you know, what happened in Britain. Because you know, Gordon Brown apologized. Um, I think he, he indicated he was going to apologize a few days before the Australian prime minister said that he was going to apologize. Um, and that's because the lid was coming off the story. By the way, Chris, have you ever seen a, a film called Oranges and Sunshine? No, I don't think I have, actually. It's got some familiar faces in it and some brilliant actors. It, yeah. I think it's Hollywood. But it's absolutely wonderful um, story of a Nottingham social worker, Margaret Humphreys. You don't get a lot of Hollywood movies about Nottingham no, social don't. workers, although we should have more. <laughs> well, I agree. But, she began, but it's so important, you know, you think from a British platform, you think of Margaret Hodge, MP, yeah. who actively covered up and besmirched whistleblowers of sexual abuse, massive industrial scale sexual abuse in the, in the London borough that she was head of, yeah. and how she had to pay damages when this guy turned out to be no pushover. He became a barrister despite his horrendous uh, experience in one of her homes. Yeah. And you compare Margaret Hodge with Margaret Humphreys. I Nottingham worker who began to force the British government, it's from below, to acknowledge the crimes that had taken place with this forced emigration of UK children mm. to Australia, Canada, Rhodesia, South Africa, and so on. Um, and, and, you know, and the story is one of a much greater scale of the numbers you've given 130,000 in just under 50 years um, are not challenged. And there again, you know, working class kids, vulnerable kids, mm. were told in some cases that if they were, if their parents were in real trouble and they were put in institutions, they were told that they could go to Australia, oranges and sunshine. They could go to Canada. You know, it's an adventure, and the children there go to school on horseback. You know what kids are like. And, okay. and when they got there, they were enslaved. Mm. They were taken in trucks in Australia to remote outback places. And they were used as labour. And the cruelty of the because Margaret Margaret Humphreys from Nottingham began to, by contacting the survivors in Australia and bringing them back to try to reunite them with their, with their families. And began to tell the stories, and it was absolutely horrendous, you know. And nobody has gone to prison in Britain. Nobody has been charged. Nobody's been shamed. Nobody's been named as the culprits in this, and it was mass abuse of tens and tens and thousands of children. The witnesses who came back and gave evidence to the inquiry into sexual, child sexual abuse, one researcher estimated that just in one school alone, Australia, in a place called Malone, 60% of the kids were sexually abused. 160 kids are survivors, adults. Yeah. Um, in Australia, yeah. took out a case against the main British institution that was that was promoting this this project. Um, 
So yeah, it's it's really grotesque. It's, it was it was there to 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 avoid the expense of putting working class kids into into care homes. No, indeed. Yeah, send I mean, them it's to Australia and wait. When you go, it's a form of of class war, isn't it? Uh, naked yeah. class war, naked class war, and I, I you know, no rich people were the no. were the subject of this, were the object of no. this. It was entirely poor and vulnerable kids. And by the way, my own personal anger stems, Chris, because I was born in '47, and yeah. this program was at, was at its peak. And my my biological mother, you know, the war, the carnage of the war. Her mm -hmm. husband had died in uh, in Burma. She'd given birth to me in '47. It was a tremendous shame at that time to a child out of wedlock. Women, some young girls were put in mental asylums. I know they were. I mean, utterly, utterly horrendous. Well, I, Mick, I, I worked in a, I worked in a, in a local hospital uh, in Derbyshire, not far from where I live, called Aston Hall, and there were, there were people in there who'd been entirely institutionalised, and they'd been incarcerated in there. I mean, I was probably working there what in the nineteen seventies. And they'd been incarcerated there from about the 19, late 1920s, 1930s, um, simply because they had a, a baby out of wedlock. I mean, this is just a horrendous treatment of, of working class people that, that, that we saw. And, and this was another this transportation of, of children that we're speaking about this evening. You know, that's another manifestation of that, of that class war. I mean, do you see, do you see echoes of... Um, that type of, of class war today, do you think, you know, that we, we could see other abuses of, of working class people emerging? Indeed, you know, working class people are, and in many ways are, you know, being uh, under sort of constant barrage, etc. But do you see, I mean, this was particularly egregious. Do you, do you, do you see the uh, potentiality for something comparable in the future? You know, somebody said if you looked inside a, a, the usual British prison, you would want it to be shut down. Mm. And I think children's homes uh, have no experience of that. To just go back to one thing you, you said there, Chris, we were talking about. Uh, a, 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 an Edinburgh social worker pointed out a care home in, uh, in Edinburgh where an old lady had died recently who had been incarcerated there as a single mother when she was just a teenager, I think, or just barely out of that. And I heard the same stories when I lived in Nova Scotia as well. Um, so this major problem of how girls and women were treated who became pregnant uh, outside wedlock. But, but what then happens to the poor? They're, you know, they're treated in, in, the, you know, in a shocking way. Everything is done on the cheap. Uh, social workers who should be looking after vulnerable children don't have the time and don't have the resources to do so scandal after scandal hits the hits the headlines of terrible i mean stories that break your heart to even think about them yeah. and it comes back to cuts the, the the looking at the caring for working class children whose families are unable or unwilling to look after them is not a priority in this system it doesn't get financed uh, it's grudgingly financed, and the and the social workers are always pointing out the, the consequences of this. And then again, you get a wretch, a, a low life form like Margaret Hodge, who actually attacks the whistleblowers who try to shine a light on grotesque, uh, long term, massive sexual abuse 
in a in a particular London ward. There's no reason why we should think that that particular London ward is exceptional. Mm. I mean, so, you know, social service. I mean, I worked in social services for a period. Indeed, I trained as a social worker. But as, as far as I can tell, I mean, you know, social work has just been a consistent failure through the decades. I mean, it's particularly difficult now because, as you say, massive cutbacks and social workers have got you know, ridiculously long, uh, massive caseloads, very difficult to, you know, just sort of keep pace. Many people, you know, fall off the agenda, don't get any input, any support at all. But one of the things that really struck me when I was working in social services, uh, Mick, was the fact that there were social services interventions and it was with working predominantly with working class families but there was a kind of intergenerational thing i mean what was what was the social work intervention achieving because what we were seeing because i you know i mean i was a social worker for a bit then i was a welfare rights officer but we saw uh the children my, my late wife she, she was a senior social worker actually um uh but we saw the families the children of families who'd had you know, a long-term sort of social services intervention. And that's not just a failure, think of social service, but that's a failure of the way in which we organise society, isn't it? Because, I mean, you know, nobody, in my opinion anyway, uh, uh, you know, should be in that sort of situation long-term, let alone intergenerationally uh, in that uh, sort of situation, you know, needing input from social services. And I think to a large extent, I mean, there are other aspects, poverty, uh, sorry, uh, mental ill health and so on, but I think the common denominator was... Uh, was poverty and you know we're not doing enough are we to um to tackle poverty and i suspect just going back to you know what the the focus of original focus of our conversation tonight was about yeah. was these were as you say working class kids from very poor backgrounds and and we're seeing a kind of it seems to me you know i mean maybe we're not transporting uh kids overseas in the way in which we we did back then but we're still massively failing aren't we young people young working class people uh, well, I, I don't want to bang on too. I mean, you're a social worker. You, you've experienced as a social worker. I've only heard anecdotal evidence from friends and yeah. colleagues that I knew. So I'll certainly defer to you on that one, Chris. But the problem is that when scandals should be exposed, they're covered up. Now, Hodge is an example, of course, and that is absolutely undeniable. But you know, in the in the stories in the stories that I started off telling here about the forced, um, the you know forcing of very poor, vulnerable working class children to Australia, it was known. You know, there was inquiry after inquiry, um, which unearthed terrible stories of abuse. Um, sample for in the, the sort of primary, the, the major. Catholic Church was organised, Barnardo's, the Methodist Church, the Church of England, they were all involved in this terrible, terrible scheme, and all of them bought into the need to whiten, uh, whiten the colonies. Yeah. It, was a, yeah. it was a nakedly racist project. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, but yes. but when, when evidence was of, of terrible abuse, it was covered up. Mm. It was covered up. You know, members of the clergy, members of political figures, Members of the royal family, the Duke of Gloucester, endorsed this particular, uh, you know, uh, organisation for the promotion of emigration, and so they actually they actually had some because these groups of honest people within them they're not all diabolical. It's the system, not the people. And so when there were inquiries and they unearthed terrible terrible abuse, uh, they actually drew up a a, a blacklist 
of institutions in Australia to which they should not send children. But they did, they kept on sending them. Uh, the blacklist was covered up because the priority was fighting Australia and getting rid of these people who were the scum, who were the, who, who, you know, who were the lowlifes as far as these people were concerned yeah. from, from the slums of Britain. These were people whose lives were not worth very much. That's why they were lied to. And you know, Chris, they were lied to and told their parents were dead. The parents were told that the children had died sometimes. Yeah. And then later, the, you know, they, these children were then subjected to a regime of abuse over many years, thinking their parents had sent them there. Mm. So they often, they were often subjected to physical beatings, but there was the mental agony of thinking, why, was, why did my parents send me here? Mm. And the parents were often lied to. Yes. The parents were told the kids can come back if they don't like it. But the children were on a one-way ticket, you know? No, indeed. And, you know, the examples of, of, of children, you know, forcibly really removed from, from their parents because they were, you know, single parents and all those other things that, you know, that we've, that we've spoken about. But, you know, the point that you made there, Mick, about, you know, people saying, well, we'll drop a blacklist and, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that we don't send kids to those institutions which are deemed to be dangerous. But, it, you know, the whole premise upon which they were basing that decision was utterly immoral, wasn't it, to kind of transport kids in the first place? Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's kind of what kind of warped thinking was going on to say, well, well, we'll keep sending the kids, but we just won't send them to these places where they're being abused. I don't oh. know whether that's a sort of a colonial mentality, you know, the empire, the you know, the the sort of uh, imperial mentality, or what you know. And so, certainly, as we've said, a class war, this class hatred thing going on. It's very clearly expressed, Chris, that they were a source of cheap labour. Yeah, you know, they were sometimes sent to the outback to build Catholic churches. Yeah, they were sent to you know locations where most Canadians or Australians would not want to go. It was very clear they were a source of cheap labor. And in fact, what happened was the institutions in Australia drew up requests that were sent back to Britain for a specific number of children of a certain age and a certain gender. Now you have to pause about the horror of that, that there was that institution in Australia saying, send us so many boys and girls. And when they got there, they were being systematically abused. And, and any attempts to blow the whistle on that were being suppressed. Yeah. So yeah, there's all sorts of decent people inside the system who try to ameliorate and try to improve things, but up against cheap labor, up against a, a, an imperial drive to fight in Australia, I mean, the, 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 there were voices in Australia who were welcoming these children, the, uh, some Archbishop of Perth, for example, and he said, thank you for coming. This is, this is wonderful. You know, we live, we're threatened the Asiatic races, uh, right, who, who are very near us. It was very, this program, look, hey, when I grew up in Glasgow, you could travel to Australia for 10 quid. Right? Oh, I remember. The, the Australians called... The Aussies called them 10 pound poms. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> my mum and dad were, were talking about potentially being 10 pound poms themselves, mate. Uh, it did decide yeah, to go in the end. But yeah, I know a lot of people. Absolutely. That option, yeah. To white in Australia, yeah. black people, the black people who lived in Glasgow need not apply. Brown people who were coming there need not apply. This was, mm. this was absolutely racist. And it was very clear. You know, send us good British stock was yeah. the word that meant white people, and yeah. uh, there were no black people that you know who could possibly be sent there. So it was really horrific at several levels. It was a social war in Britain, 
to save money, why look after these children in homes, which however horrible still have to be paid for, when you can use them as cheap labor in Australia and you're, you're actually carrying out a racist agenda at the same time. And that racist agenda is financed by the government because there was a, you know, there were private institutions with, with Royal and other patrons, but the British government passed a law and then they began to finance this operation, which of course gave it credibility and prestige in the eyes of some parents who, when somebody came and said, look, you, you know, you're so poor, you, 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 your children are in a home at the moment. Why not just send them to Australia? They'll be happy. It'll be lovely. There'll be sunshine and oranges and going to school on horseback and so on and so on. So it, it was this atmosphere. You, you know, Chris, you remember when asbestos was discovered to be absolutely yeah. lethal. Yes. The fact that it was ubiquitous meant that yeah. people didn't believe their ironing board was a, was a threat, no. you know, it was a dangerous no. thing in their home. The, the ubiquity of it somehow carried it along. And that was yeah. the case for this project. Only very few voices were raised against it because only very few voices, very few people knew the horror of what was happening in the destination mm. uh, colonies. What, what did you make of Gordon Brown's fairly mealy-mouthed apology, Nick? Well, it was hardly a fulsome apology, was it? Well, the first thing before you look at the content, Chris, which is um, worth thinking about, was the timing. You know, this had been going on since before the war. It was still, it reached a peak, I think, in 69. And it was only terminated in the, the, the 70s, 70, no, 68, then it ended in 72. Thousands of families were in Australia and, and beginning to make their voices heard. Margaret Humphreys had begun to raise the issue in, in, uh, in, you know, in Nottingham. And then Gordon Brown comes along and, you know, and, 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 and apologises. But he organised when he was left with no choice because Kevin Rudd must have got in touch with him and said, I'm going to apologise on behalf of the Aussie government. And then just before he did it, Gordon Brown announced that he was going to apologise later. He did so several months later. But, you know, I come back to this. Why was there no, you know, public inquiry? Why was this not treated as a grave crime against humanity, working class, vulnerable humanity? Uh, and why was it just an apology and some money and nobody nobody was held accountable? Well, well presumably it's because, you know, it was the uh, a mainstay of the establishment. It was an establishment project. And, you know, the, the establishment are rarely held to account for their misdeeds, in, in my view. I don't know whether you would agree with that, Nick. No, that, look, that's simple, that's simple, you know, in, in science, a very basic theory that explains everything is a, is a strong one. And that, what you've just said explains so much. You know, look at Grenfell. How many years is it since Grenfell? Nobody's, years, nobody's yeah. yet been charged or gone to court, as far as I know. Uh, there might be charges, but it's still just a big might. Um, you know, there's... The establishment has got moats and ditches and, and, and fences to protect itself. So that even when a story comes out, it, you know, it can be, there can be delaying tactics. People, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, just on the, Grenfell, on the Grenfell question, I was the shadow fire minister when Sir Martin Morbick was appointed to chair the inquiry, which was very controversial. And the local community were opposed to his appointment because he was seen as an establishment stooge. I mean, he'd made, he presided in a number of high profile cases, uh, legal cases, and had 
invariably come down on the side of the of the establishment in that sense um, and had actually been overturned at the Supreme Court. And, and I sort of spoke out against that. But there were forces inside the Labour Party who moved against me, never mind, you know, the Tories or uh, officialdom in, in the sort of uh, in reaches of the establishment. I mean, it was, you know, it was key figures in the parliamentary Labour Party that were moving against me saying, oh, we can't we can't say that. It's not up to us to, to determine. I was trying to say, well, I thought it was, you know, under Jeremy Corbyn, this was a new type of politics, you know what I mean? Straight talking on his politics and, you know, we should be on the side of uh, of working class people um but no i mean they they just no no we we that's not that was just unacceptable you know to sort of take that angle so you know the influence of the establishment and the cover-ups you know it's very very deep and it, and it's a cross-party thing it's not you know like sort of like, well you know labor will, will come out on the side of the people against the establishment they seem to be they aren't very much part and parcel of the establishment and that whole thing around Grenfell I think you know really brought that that home to me but I just wanted to just sort of make another point uh, Nick, and be interested in your thoughts on this I mean you talked about you know various inquiries and stuff and you know been on this particular scandal you know very little done a mealy mouth apology you know some compensation but nobody really held to a to account in that sense but you know where there's been other just in terms of social services children's social services other and I think you've alluded to this in some of your earlier remarks this evening, Nick, you know, there's been some some horrendous uh, incidents, things that, that, that have happened. Um, and there's been various inquiries and people, you know, talk about learning the uh, uh, the lessons. But, you know, the lessons never are learned, you know, because we th these tragedies just keep going, keep happening. And and it comes back, it seems to me, to there's a there's a there's a structural problem. In, in in the economy and society and it comes back to this whole thing around around class and class war doesn't it where you know we have these various inquiries you know the baby p inquiry and all that kind of stuff um but but nothing fundamentally changes nothing fundamentally improves and things are actually getting worse i mean you mentioned the cuts in the provision of public services the provision of social services uh, and that has coincided with a massive increase in the incidence of poverty and deprivation. I mean, you know, this is a kind of uh, a recipe for disaster, isn't it? Wow. To start, Chris, I mean, I said, you know, when when crimes are unearthed or in danger of being unearthed or there's whispered by a few people or one pay, one newspaper carries a, a story about it, they do have moats and ditches of defences. And one of the main one of the main lines of defence for the Tory party is the Labour Party. Yeah. I mean, they can be relied upon to take a lot of the heat. Um, they hate each other when it comes to you know the, the the prime places on the gravy train. They fight that. But there's a massive, overwhelming uh, consensus between the two. Uh, so that, for example, if I can bring it back to my 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 main uh, concern, which is the crimes against the people of Palestine. How can it be that, you know, while Britain is sending sniper rifle parts to the Israeli army, which is mowing down journalists, children, the UNHCR says uh, the Israeli army is killing children, knowing that they are children. Yeah. Prominent journalists confirm this. Um, a, a look at the record will, will support that. British juries 
have found the Israeli army guilty of murdering British men and including a journalist, David Miller. So sometimes it comes out into the public domain because of the honest men and women of a jury, but even an honest judge sometimes. But there's still an amazing number of blankets to suffocate the story with mm. so that so that, you know, the crimes continue. And these aren't crimes that you could sit down with somebody and they would argue with you. It's, it's, in, it's incontrovertible that selling sniper rifle parts to snipers who shoot down unarmed demonstrators day after week is a crime, mm. but it continues. And, and you have to look at the totality, the whole picture of the defences that these arms companies have. Thank God some young men and women are going up on the roofs now oh, yeah. and challenging no, that. No, they are, they are, they yeah. are. But you know this 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 class war that we're, that we're kind of talking about, and, you know the way in which these working class kids were were treated over that extended period of of time, and there's still a class war being waged right now, and that's intensifying and getting worse. You know we're seeing, as I've already mentioned, poverty increasing, precarious employment getting worse, cuts in in public services, kind of a perfect storm. Um, the political class not really fit for purpose. So, you know, you've been around a while, Mick. You've been a, you're a seasoned campaigner. Um, you're an inspiration. I mean, what's to be done? I mean, what, what can we say to people watching this program this evening or on catch up? Um, you know, what, what, what can you give people some sort of hope that? You know, we can, it is possible to, to build an alternative. It is possible to fight back. It is possible to, you know, create a better society because we're going in the wrong direction now. Things are getting, I mean, look, you know, for most of, well, all of my young life, lot, the, the lot of, I mean, it wasn't perfect, obviously, but the lot of working class people was on the up. It was improving. Inequality was diminishing, you know, Every year, a bigger proportion of the national cake was going into the pockets of, of workers. And it's been going in the opposite direction ever since Dennis Healy went to the International Monetary Fund in 1976. I mean, I don't want to sort of, you know, counsel of despair, but you, as I say, you, you've, you've been a brilliant campaigner. You've, you, you know, you've, and you are an inspiration. I mean, what, what hope can you give to people? What, what encouragement can you give to people watching this, this programme? about how we can fight back? What can we do? Um, I mean, just think, of, think about uh, Mick Lynch. Um, the fact that, I mean, he wasn't Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn, I think, was very softly spoken, nice guy, but he didn't smell of cordite. He didn't have uh, real leadership and he's going to threaten uh, threaten the opposition with a superior force, in which case a mobilised and organised key workforce. Mick Lynch changed the mood pretty quickly, and um, not because he was very articulate, which he was, uh, but because he was backed up by mass action. Um, but the mass action by itself wouldn't have been enough. You needed that kind of political leadership and somebody who's able to talk about things in a simple way so that when anybody walks away, they think, why didn't I see that before? It's as obvious as the nose in my face, right? So I think things can change very quickly. Um, and I think in Britain at the moment, we've seen extremes of poverty and wealth. We've seen extreme militarism, you know, a thirst and a lust for war um, to, to, to please the arms companies. 
Um, and I think there's a, you know, apathy can mean two different things. It can mean I don't care, or it can mean I don't see any way out of this hell that I'm in. And that can change, that latter one can change. And I think Mick Lynch was an example of that. And of course, I mean the railway workers in general as well, with him at their head. So I think the, the status quo is fragile. The Tories are, uh, there was an opinion poll in Scotland a few weeks ago, Chris, uh, Boris Johnson was hated or despised by 84% of the population and 12% uh, thought he was doing a good job. God knows where that 12% came from, uh, but, you know, there's always some. You know, it's a fragile thing, and um, they will rely upon the Labour Party at some stage when, when, uh, when Johnson implodes or is caught in some other grotesque crime that just crosses a line or the Tories decide that he's now an impediment. But you know, people need to organise. And I think, you know, small numbers of people are organising in each town and city for something when the mood does turn. The mood will turn, you know. Um, and already in my own line of business, my own line of, of, of concern, we face a situation where there's militant and unsparing support for Israel among elites. But there's also a crisis in terms of public opinion because the public doesn't go along with that. I, I don't know what the what the mood is for war at the moment, but I don't think the great majority of people are going to be prepared to be pushed in order for, for Boris Johnson to send more and more weapons to fight to the last Ukrainian. So I think a crisis is looming. Uh, workers are facing a real fall in their living standards. N next door neighbor, her oil, her oil heating bill has trebled, I think. Um, so people are really suffering and and there's always in a war an initial period when people are confused and demoralized and think that, you know, maybe this propaganda, maybe, maybe the Germans are evil, maybe the Russians are evil, maybe the Argentines are evil. I, you know, it takes a while for the fog to clear and individuals to realize they've been conned. And if the body bags don't come home to Britain, uh, there's a hell of a bill coming home to Britain, which working class people are going to be expected to pay. I don't. I think that when those bills begin to come through the door, more and more people will be forced to think, yeah. is this worth it? Are we fighting for a national liberation struggle? Or is, 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 there, is this NATO trying to crush Russia uh, and using, using the, the Ukrainians as pawns? And I, I, think, I think, you know, it's an, it's an unstable equilibrium of God at the moment. And war is always an accelerator of, of radical change. But there's hard times to go through before that. Mm. Do you think the um, the challenge, as and when it comes, will be led by the trade union movement, or do you think it will be civil society or a combination? There's no other I mean, candidate. You mentioned Mick, you mentioned Mick Lynch, you know, from the RMT, but I mean, obviously but, there are lots of other unions. But there's, there's you know there's no other candidate. Sherlock Holmes said, you know, when you do out every other hypothesis, the one that's left, however unreasonable, however unlikely, that's the answer. And I'm not saying it's, it's unlikely, but the political space for debate has been closed down at a national level by Starmer, the Lib Dems, you know, they're all for war, and, 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 and the Tories. So that political space is closed down. There are, there are groups of people up and down the country who are not happy with what's going on. But as a national political force, it's the trade unions at the moment. Um, and, but, but trade unions of the type of the RMD, with that kind of class, with that kind of leadership that knows, by the way, 
seems to me that the RMT, the, the, the railway workers have got it. They know the miners were massively powerful, but were isolated and crushed. Isolated from real solidarity and were crushed. And that the RMT are making an argument, not just to the public going to train stations, but to other workers. Every time Mick Lynch talks, it seems to me he talks about health workers and teachers and everybody else. And I think there's that awareness dearly bought that even a powerful group of workers can't win on their own. I think, frankly, if Arthur um, Mick McGarhy, um, you know, and the rest of the the miners' uh, leadership had had access to the uh, internet, uh, to social media, to YouTube, then they would have perhaps been, you know, be able to, you know, spread their their message more effectively. I mean, they were reliant upon the all powerful corporate media and we know that they completely misrepresented the the miners uh, struggle but yeah i mean absolutely that uh, i mean what the rmt doing and mick lynch has been a revelation in terms of as you say placing that struggle that the rail workers are engaged in in that wider context i think is is absolutely uh, crucial but the other the other thing um elephants perhaps in the room and given that you're speaking to us from north of the border is a potential um independence uh, for Scotland and uh, you know that might maybe shake up the uh, the tree a little bit what, what's your thoughts on that mate as, as a potential force for, for you know progressive change rather than reactionary nationalism well up here the Labour Party was really crushed by the SNP who, when I grew up, were called, uh, were just always called Tartan Tories. The oh, first yeah. time I ever heard the SNP referred to, oh, yeah, Tartan Tories. And they were very right-wing indeed. So Alex Salmond was cast into outer darkness by that by those three leaders. But they brought him back later to lead the SNP, and he moved it in a social democratic direction. He realised that they had to get working-class voters in Coatbridge and Airdrie and Glasgow and Edinburgh and so on, Falkirk and Dundee, and he moved that party to the left. Not radically to the left, but you don't have to go very far to the left to be left of Labour. And that's where he well, wanted certainly. to go. That's where he wanted to go. And, and yeah. working class people deserted Labour in their droves because there was this electoral alternative, which sadly did not exist in England and Wales um, to, to anything like the same degree. No. Um, so they could find an expression there for social democratic ideas, a better health service, uh, free prescriptions, it's all, sorts, all sorts of, you know, interesting reforms, worthwhile reforms. And Labour was talking austerity, austerity, austerity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, where are we now? Um, but you see, Salmond also was a, against the war in Iraq. He, he launched a campaign. It wasn't a campaign, but he launched a campaign to impeach Tony Blair, uh, for example. So that was the kind of profile that he cultivated. Nicola Sturgeon a few weeks ago almost called for World War III. You know, she called for daily consideration of a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Yeah, which ridiculous. Even the hawks in NATO weren't, you know, were, were afraid to talk about it because it was just crazy stuff. So the, the, the problem is, <laughs> let me be a little bit cynical. I remember just be, before the first referendum, which was absolutely wonderfully politicised and, uh, you know, a, a, Great debates everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember, I, remember my, I, can't, I can't stand the character, Andrew Neil, right? Horrible okay. guy. Uh, yeah. But he, he reported he was in a restaurant in Glasgow and 
you know, there was a, you know, a hen party at one corner of the restaurant, and it yeah, went yeah. in a tumult, you know, a noise and so on. So he said to the waiter, what's going on over there? He said, well, they're discussing the referendum and right, the economics yeah. of the NHS. You know, yeah, yeah, there, was a, yeah. there was this very, there was a real fantastic politicization, yeah. Chris. Mm-hmm. Um, where are we now? Um, hatred of Boris Johnson will only get you so far. Yes. I mean, if there were a left-wing government in London, the, the, the SNP's roots would, would, would begin to dry up. They yeah. need the Tories, probably, um, in London in order for people in, in Glasgow and, and Edinburgh to reach for the escape pod. Let's get out of here. And if there's mm-hmm. no class politics available to, 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 to articulate that, then you know at least it's an escape pod. And I think a lot of people would, would, will be voting SNP on that basis. Uh, let's get independence, and then we'll get rid of the SNP and get you know class. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard a lot of people say that. Socialists yeah. have, have said that. You know, they, they've got no truck with the uh, certainly the SNP in its present incarnation, its leadership, Nicola Sturgeon and the rest of them. They're a bunch of neoliberals at the end of the day, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And bloody warhawks. I mean, as you as you say, I mean, it's a crazy, crazy bloody rhetoric that they're that they're coming up coming out with. Um, but there is. Uh, hopefully, it's not a naive view. But they, they, you know, there is, there's this. Widely held in my experience, and of quite a few Scottish people, uh, where they say, you know, well, look, you know, let's get independence, and then we can sort out the SNP. Then, you know, then we can, uh, you know, we they seem confident, you know, they could get a, a socialist government elected there. I mean, and Christ, that would be great. I mean, it'd be man from hell might move to Scotland if that were to happen. <laughs> Certainly, oh, yeah. I think it would be a it would be a great uh, it would be a great um, you know comparator, wouldn't it, uh, to. Um, to, to England, although even now, I mean, you know, with free prescriptions and tuition and all that kind of stuff, I mean, it, you know, it's possible to, to, to do that. I and mean, that's being done in Scotland. And yet, you know, we still see that the Tories uh, holding sway in. Uh, but I mind, as you say, I mean, and, uh, and certainly I concur with this, you know, the Labour Party is no real alternative to, to the Tories. But sorry, mate, you were just going to say something else. No, I mean, uh, the, it's difficult to see the immediate future except that 10% inflation and much higher for the basic necessities that working class families need, fuel and, and food, it's much more than 10%. So people are going to suffer unless they fight back. And we can see you know, movements in that direction, not just the rail workers, but various other very important groups mm. are deciding to take industrial action to defend themselves. Mm. So how, what the reaction to that will be, it's difficult to tell. The Tories can only respond by jingoism, racism, sending refugees to, to Rwanda, for yeah. God's sake, yeah. oh, or wow. some other hatred of the foreigner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the important thing for me anyway is for trade unions, not just to fight for their members, but to fight for the weak. We came in here yeah. talking about those yeah. vulnerable kids uh, who were snatched from orphanages and institutions in Britain and sent off to slave labour and sexual abuse in Australia. Nobody protected them. No. Uh, the trade unions were, were not, you know, it has to be, it has to involve trade unions to protect mm. the strong, you know, socialism is about many things, but it's the strong defending the weak. Mm. And if they're not defending the weak, then we're not actually no, moving. Indeed. The right well, it goes direction. back to the point I've always been going on about, you know, solidarity, you know, it's, it's so crucial, working class solidarity, raising political consciousness. If we do that, then we are incredibly uh, powerful, but I guess the uh, 
the underlying message, I suppose, from what, what you're saying is, uh, you know, people, if you're not already a member of a trade union, join a trade union, get involved in it and, and you know, urge that they take on the sort of role that you've just been advocating there, that, you know, not just simply about the narrow interest of the workforce that the trade union represents, but that having that wider social, you know, conscience and uh, interaction in terms of, the you know, the wider good society that we desperately need to create and of course you know the resist movement is is a you know uh, moving in the direction of potentially a political party we're working with the trade unionist and socialist uh, coalition um and so you know we're looking to sort of build that you know potential alternative uh, electoral vehicle as well but it's you know it's difficult it's not easy in the sort of electoral system they have in this country but i don't think we've got any other choice mick because what's on offer from the you know the established political class is just you know, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, two sides of the same coin. But look, we're in the last 15 minutes, and I did say in the last sort of um, third quarter of the programme, we would uh, invite Sean, who's been um, moderating for us and uh, and looking at what, what people have been saying. And so we'll ask Sean to come in now and see if there's any questions or comments that people have put, put that Mick might want to respond to. Hi, good evening. Hope you're all well. Um, thank you for the people in the chat. We've had some a couple of really interesting discussions tonight. Um, on any sundry mule um, says that in the 1700s and 1800s, people displaced by land enclosure would be expatriated by their wards to mill towns uh, to get the cost of their upkeep off the parish. Um, this is a similar a thing that you're talking about, he says. Um, so yeah, I didn't realize it was going on even you know even further back did you know that mick well yes i mean uh even earlier uh employ i can't remember but jobless vagabonds were treated with uh, great cruelty in order to create the modern working class driven into places where they would compete for employment um but the detail of that no i'm not i'm not very familiar with but the general rule um, that uh, to create a modern working class, you have to terrorise individuals into areas where the dark satanic mills are going to be built and are going to be run. Um, it's, I mean, you don't have to be a Marxist to read Karl Marx. To lead. By the way, if you've ever read the first chapter, the first chapter, the first volume of Capital, it can be a bit challenging. You know, it's, yeah. um, I find it challenging anyway. Uh, maybe your viewers are smarter than me. But the last six chapters of the volume about the primitive accumulation of capital. Um, the Duchess of Sutherland gets, a, gets a, a mention, but it's about the bloody violent birth of capitalism and how the state used the most atrocious means, branding, whipping, mutilation, expulsion, driving people uh, to Canada and Australia for that matter, to, to refer to what we talked about at the beginning, in huge numbers um, in order to, for the system to, to reach a to reach a stage where it became kind of um, self-generating, if you like. Uh, so yeah, it was born out of extreme cruelty, and that extreme cruelty continues. You know how many families today, Chris, you'll know, um, uh, have to survive on one meal a day in Britain, yeah. or have to choose between feeding or um, or uh, or buying clothes. Yeah, a it's astonishing, Mick. In, in the fifth biggest economy in the world, again, something I constantly rail about that. These are political choices that literally nobody needs to be struggling in this country. And uh, you'll remember, Mick, and again, something else I, I regularly talk about, 
when I was a youngster growing up in the 60s, we were told to get ready for the leisure generation because by the 1990s, we'd all be working like a very short working week of around 15 hours. And indeed, again, something else I've mentioned on this show uh, previously, uh, John Maynard Keynes made a speech in 1930 predicting that his grandchildren, our generation, would only be working 15 hours a week because of the um, advent of, of new technology. Well, new technology has come, but it hasn't been for the benefit of ordinary working class people. It's been accreted by, you know, the corporate elites. And uh, again, you know, to, to kind of keep, keep repeating myself, but something I was talking about when I was on the Democracy Roadshow for the uh, Labour Party, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader to sort of democratise the Labour Party, but we talked about a whole range of, of other things other than just simply democratising the Labour Party. That was a means to an end because we wanted to democratise and need to democratise the economy. But one of the points I was making is we all should become 21st century Luddites because all the Luddites were saying was, well, technology, new technology is fine, but it should be our servant, not our master. And um, yeah, so, you know, we are, uh, yeah, we're in, um, we're, in a, we're in a difficult place at the moment, I think, as a country, um, you know, very, very wealthy country, powerful economy that, that is just making very poor choices, it seems to me, that are having such a, a detrimental effect on literally millions and millions and millions of people. Um, I mean, what a scandal that people die on the streets of Britain because they're homeless. I mean, it's just shouldn't be happening. It just shouldn't be happening, this sort of thing. But, but we can only challenge it if, if we do come together. And, uh, you know, the sort of work that you've been doing, Mick, I think, and, and what we're hoping to try and deliver and have been working to, to deliver through Resist and there's other groups as well, I think, is to, is to mobilise people and to give them the, that self-confidence, really, to fight back. We've done it in the past. The working class have, have done it in the past, haven't we? You know, we've got weekends and uh, health and safety at work and, you know, the sort of things that we sort of take for granted, holiday pay and the rest, all the rest of it, you know, equal pay for, for men and women, etc. These, these were never given. They were fought for uh, by working class people, by the trade union movement, by the wider labour movement. Uh, you know, we, we, you know we, as, we forced it. We forced it. And... Uh, if we just sort of hung around waiting for the largesse of some bloody blue rinse brigade to <laughs> look after us, gosh, we'll be waiting a hell of a long time, wouldn't we? But, but many of the many of those things are, are been you know they've been trying to take those benefits away from us by creating mm, the zero hours contracts. Yes, absolutely. Um, so there's a lot of people out there. I think I'd like to know the numbers actually and the statistics of how many people do you actually work on zero hours contracts but you take a day off sick you don't get paid no. um you don't get holiday pay um you don't get any of those things um so the capitalist system is has found a way to work around that uh, mm. those hard worn things haven't they yeah um, oh, you, i agree I'm, sorry go on sean um no it's okay you carry on what you were saying no, I mean, absolutely. Things are, things I mean, right. Well, I'm just going to invite Mick to, uh, to, to come in and comment on that point. Yeah, go on, Mick. I would say two things. When I was born in 47, um, two years before that, about a million men had come back to Britain with guns. And they had, uh, they had been told they were off there to fight the fascists and the Nazis. Um, they were doing that. They were also promoting empire, but that wasn't the, their personal drive. And when they came back, we got uh, a national health service. We got unemployment benefit. 
every morning in my home, we were a very poor family. I'd be four bottles of milk. Every week we had a bottle of orange juice and every month we had cod liver oil on the doorstep, right? Yeah. I went to university on a grant, a grant, and I had enough to get drunk on a Friday night and still uh, pay, you know, pay, pay rent on a wee flat in Glasgow. Yes, as you said earlier, Chris, life got better. There were several reasons for that, but one certainly was the fear among our elite of those returning soldiers in 45. They were not going back in their box as they were put back in their box after 1918. And even Quinton Hogg made a speech in Parliament saying, you better give these guys reforms because if you don't, they'll give you revolution, right? A senior Tory grandee. Yeah. So that, that was the reality. And that's what gave us six years of, of, uh, of, of serious uh, social reform. One caveat is this, it didn't go far enough. No, that no, no, no. same radical Labour Party of that period supported the ethnic cleansing of Palestine and urged Absolutely. the Palestinians to leave so that uh, European Jews could move in. So yeah. there was a blind spot of colonialism and imperialism that any, any new movement building now that to fight for working class country uh, and to fight with them really has to put... Um, you know, Absolutely. Sending. Well, Mick, I mean, in terms of what we've said around um, the uh, resist movement and uh, going forward as when we, you know, we we're in the process of registering as a, as a political party, that internationalism has to be at the centre, really, or, or a cornerstone, if you like, of, of what we do. I don't think we can retreat into a sort of, you know, narrow kind of, you know, nationalist sort of uh, mentality. I think it's really important to have that anti-imperialist mindset and to recognize i mean i suppose the old marching call you know workers of the world unite i do think there is a, a lot to be said for that and uh, and that's something that we do need to to keep to the fore and and that needs to be very much in my opinion anyway part of the whole kind of uh, you know political consciousness raising process that we need to to go through but any other comments sean in the in the last sort of few minutes Oh, we, we, we were just discussing something called the Fairbridge Society, uh, which one of our members, uh, one of our... Uh, oh, hang on. I've just got Mick ringing me. Keep going, Sean. But one of the people might, in chat used to work for. Um, so we, we got talking about that. That was um, an organisation that was we involved... Lost you, Mick that was involved in child migration to Australia and Canada. Um, and it was founded in 1909. Um, it merged with the Prince's Trust and it didn't actually cease the migration of children until 1981, um, which I think will probably be quite shocking to, uh, to some of our viewers. Um, it came as quite a shock to me. Um, they've also been uh, called up to give evidence in the ICSA tribunal um, for um, it, which is the investigation into child sexual abuse. Um, so um, yeah, be interesting to see more about that, but they are now merged with the Prince's Trust. Um, so yeah, sounds like a bit of a, a dodgy organization, um, but they do provide help to children from disadvantaged backgrounds, apparently throughout the UK. Um, so yeah. Uh, they obviously were quite dodgy back in their, in their day. Um, one of the other things that you brought up, Chris, was that there was two points I wanted to make. You, you spoke about um, the Baby P case and social services. Before the Baby P case, there was the Victoria Clambier case, if you remember that, um, which wasn't that long ago. Um, you know, it was probably back in the 2000s, something like that. And um, 
there was an effort by social services and government to change how we work together as agencies so the schools uh, social services hospitals etc and I remember being part of a pilot team in Manchester um, for the multi-agency uh, team um, called um, Every Child Matters and we were changing the way we taught and we were changing the way we worked together with these other professionals but it ultimately fell down at the first post because social services would never reveal information about their clients. So even though you were a teacher, you were working with these kids and families on a daily basis and knew them probably better than anybody, you weren't able to help these kids. You could only pass on information. Um, so it, it sort of died a death. Um, and then we, you know, you get to the next big uh, social services case where children are let down and the next and the next and the next and the next and it, no lessons are ever learned. Um, I also, um, the other thing I wanted to point out was um, was CAMS. CAMS is yeah. an absolutely appalling service that is in crisis yeah. in this country. Um, there was a, a lady on uh, Twitter yesterday who was talking about her child had to be, she's um, in a family of five, they're all registered disabled, and one yeah. of the children had been shipped seven hours away to a mm. private mental no, hospital. Indeed. Well, of course, a lot of this is down to, again, the point that Mick was making, uh, big cutbacks in, in public services. And I mean, I think the point you're making about you know, collaboration between agencies is really important. That needs to be done better. But even if that was done perfectly, I still don't think it would have worked because there's no fundamental structural shift in the redistribution of wealth and income in the country. And I think without that, there could be fantastic collaboration. But if you're not tackling the underlying problem, which very often is poor housing, poverty, and a whole host of other problems which are associated with that, the agencies can, you know, can collaborate till the cows come home, but they're not, if they're not, you know, if we're not as a society, if we're not as a country, they're tackling the root cause, which is, you know, poverty. I mean, I know there are problems when you've eliminated poverty, but we, let's sort that out and, and let's have that collaboration and proper resourcing. Uh, of of public services, but uh, yeah. So, well, so Labour, Labour made a start with that, with the short yeah. start, didn't they? They um, did, but again, but it could, you know, again, it could have gone a lot further. It should have absolutely. I mean, yeah, short start was was a was a was a you know fairly decent uh, initiative. But again, I mean, let's not forget, you know, inequality got worse under under New Labour, and uh, you know, mm. they never attract, they never addressed the fundamental underlying problem, and that was neoliberalism. Which is, you know, which is a violent ideology, you know, that's, that's, that's caused great havoc throughout the world. But Mick, we're right at the end. We're in the last minute. Uh, I don't think you got any final comments. And um, as I mentioned at the outset, you know, you're famous for founding the fantastic Scottish uh, Palestine Solidarity campaign. Is there any way in which people can, you know, make contact with the uh, Scottish uh, Palestine Solidarity campaign or get in touch with you? Uh, is there a contact number or email? Hey Chris, thanks for the invitation. Resistance TV is inspiring. Uh, people resisting is inspiring. Railway workers resisting is very, very inspiring. Um, we have to come together. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch, just Google Scottish Palestine Solidarity Campaign. We do a regular daily post and we also do, which Chris gets, and we also have a, we're launching a new magazine, well, second edition coming out of a new magazine that tries to embed, provide a framework 
for uh, for solidarity campaigning. But thanks for the invitation, Chris. It's always no, a pleasure, mate. It's great to see you. Uh, Mick Napier, thanks for coming on this evening. Founder of the Scottish campaign, uh, Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Really good to have you. Thanks, everybody, for watching this evening. We'll see you next week. Good night. <laughs>